Digital Gonzo, episode 89, dated Thursday the 19th of July 2012. Batman Begins. Tell us, Mr. Wayne. What do you fear? How do you know my name? The world is too small for someone like Bruce Wayne to disappear. Your parents' death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Which is? A legend, Mr. Wayne. Master Wayne, are you coming back for long, sir? As long as it takes to show the people of Gotham their city doesn't belong to the criminals and the corrupt. Bruce? Rachel? You were gone a long time. I know. Things are worse than ever down here. What chance does Gotham have when the good people do nothing? No mix alive will suit for advanced infantry. Terrible law utility harness, gas powered magnetic grapple gun. What's that? I'm on the tumbler? You wouldn't be interested in that. I spent a lot of time being scared for you. I heard you were back. With the man I loved. The man who vanished never came back. He's here. Who? The Batman. This is the ninth of 11 Batman reviews for Digital Gonzo on the road to The Dark Knight Rises. We've covered the films, live action and animated, the best games, a fantastic book, the animated series and the Adam West series. And now we start Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. In the Batcave with me for this super serious analysis, Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince. Hello there. Neil Taylor of Game Burst and KDS 2.0. Hello. Hello. Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. Of Gonzo Planet, Paul Gibson. Hello. Also of Gonzo Planet, Sharon Shaw. Hello. Also of Gonzo Planet, and joining the cast of reviewers, Akila Edwards. Hello. Also, also of Gonzo Planet. This film, originally designed to fill in the blanks in Batman's comic career and thus illuminate vital, fascinating psychological aspects of Bruce Wayne, was also an attempt to reboot the franchise, which, with 1997's Batman and Robin, had died screaming like a pig in a war. Eight years had passed and there were various attempts to bring back the bat. Audiences were given a vital cooling-off period and a whole new generation of children were born to be led wide-eyed into this inappropriately mature and violent depiction of the caped crusader. This is, of course, why the animated shows exist, to provide a more palatable alternative for the kiddiewinks whilst adults are being catered for by Nolan's sombre, exhilarating affairs. I'm just going to go briefly over the... Uh, 
attempts at bringing Batman back after Batman and Robin. Batman Triumphant. Batman Triumphant was the one I talked about during the Batman and Robin Batman Forever show, which we're trying to forget right now. Uh, that was the one where the Scarecrow turns up and then using fear gas brings the Joker back as a hallucination. And, uh, yeah, that Scarecrow himself was going to be played by Howard Stern, Nicolas Cage, Steve Buscemi, Ewan McGregor, and Jeff Goldblum were all suggested for the role. Madonna could have been the choice for Harley Quinn. Was everyone smoking crack? Indeed. When when will people get it into their heads? Madonna can't act. Have you seen Dick Tracy? There are so many actresses out there. Why hire Madonna? But an actress wasn't hired. Well, if you'd hired Madonna, an actress still wouldn't have been hired. Wouldn't and Jack Nicholson was going to reprise his role for the from the Tim Burton film to come back as, as the joke. I mean, that's that's basically like, okay, we can't think of anything else to do with this Batman, but you kids liked the Joker, didn't you? Let's bring him back. Yes, because recasting the Joker would never work. Never work. However, when Batman and Robin received negative reviews, I'll say it's got like a 13% and failed to outgross any of its predecessors. Warner Brothers was unsure of their plans for Batman Triumphant, which, by the way, as I said back on that show, was a stupid title for it. There's no tension there if you know that Batman's going to be triumphant. The studio decided it was best to consider a live-action Batman Beyond film and an adaptation of Frank Miller's Year One. Warner Brothers would then greenlight whichever idea suited them the most. It ended up being Year One. And then the second project they got into was Dark Knight. Uh, despite, despite Warner Brothers and Schumacher's interest with Year One, Lee Shapiro, a comic book fan, and Stephen Wise pitched the studio for a, a script titled Batman Dark Knight, all one word, uh, in mid-1998. Dark Knight, all being one word, it sounds like a, a detective with a particularly awesome name. <laughs> with a missing K as well, yeah. by the looks of it. Bruce <laughs> Dark Knight. Uh, had Bruce Wayne give, giving up his crime-fighting career and Dick Grayson attending Gotham University. Dr. Jonathan Crane uses, again, they were going to go with a scarecrow, uses his position as professor of psychology at Gotham U and as head psychiatrist in Arkham Asylum to conduct his experiments into fear. This element would later appear in Batman Begins. During a vengeful confrontation with a colleague, Dr. Kirk Landstrom, that's Man-Bat, folks, Crane unknowingly initiates Kirk's transformation into the character known as Man-Bat. Citizens of Gotham believe Man-Bat's nightly activities to be Batman's bloodthirsty return. No. Because that's a Bat-Man. Not Batman. <laughs> Bruce becomes Batman to clear his name and solve the mystery of the Man-Bat. Kirk struggles with his man-versus-monster syndrome as he longs to both reunite with his wife and get revenge on Crane, much like the lizard in Spider-Man. While Crane exacts revenge on those responsible for his dismissal from both Arkham and the university while encountering truths from his past, Warner Brothers decided not to move forward with the project and passed on Batman Dark Knight in favour of Year One and Batman Beyond. So basically, it was a prospective idea written by people who knew the comics, and from the sounds of it, we're trying to sort of draw it back to something like a bit more sort of animated series, which, frankly, at that time, could only have been a good thing. And a lot of those elements are from major Batman storylines. Yeah, yeah. Certainly the Man-Bat stuff and the Crane-Getting-Revenge storylines are. I think I'm probably the only person here that's going, I wish they'd gone with Batman Beyond. I, I would kind of like to see that one done properly. I'm quite there it. with you, Neil. Yeah. yeah, the only trouble is, it would be really good, but really easy to screw up, and also whether mm. or not fans would go for it, because that was the biggest problem with Batman Beyond. It wasn't the Batman that people knew. There's too much of a departure. 
Then there was Batman Year One. Uh, in January 2000, Scott Rosenberg turned down the chance to write the script for Year One. In mid-2000, Paul Dini, oh, Neil Stevenson, and Boaz Yakin were hired to write a script for Batman Beyond. Ah, Batman Beyond, with Yakin to direct. The film was based on the Warner Brothers animated television serial of the same name. However, Warner Brothers abandoned Batman Beyond almost instantly in favour of Year One. Around the same time, Warner Brothers hired Darren Aronofsky to write and direct Year One, despite interest from Joel Schumacher. (laughs) You know, going to give him the benefit of the doubt, he did express interest in that in the making of Batman Forever. So, found out from, uh, you know, afterwards that Joel Schumacher had a really depressing couple of years after Batman and Robin. His name was Mud in Hollywood, and he had to go and do, well, what all humble directors need to do which is to go back to their indie roots Aronofsky who collaborated with Frank Miller on an unproduced script for Ronin brought Miller to co-write year one with him they intended to reboot the Batman franchise somewhat based on the comic book Aronofsky said toss out out everything you can imagine about Batman everything we're starting completely anew risky Regular Aronofsky collaborator Matthew Leboutique was set to cinematographer and Aronofsky had also approached Christian Bale for the role of Batman. Coincidentally, Bale will be cast in the role for Batman Begins. Really coincidentally? Surely he'd have been like on a book somewhere, like possible Batman. At the same time, Warner Brothers was moving forward on the Catwoman spin-off. However, by June 02, the studio decided to move forward on Batman vs. Superman and abandon year one. You can say, this is a studio that doesn't know what it wants. This is why I fear for Justice League. It's mm. The comment in there that's really strange is that, well, it's based on the comic book, but you throw out everything about Batman. Well, then it's not based on the comic book, then, no. is it? It's <laughs> your interpretation of Batman. That's fine, just don't say it's based on the comic book. What yeah. makes me laugh is people seem to have this obsession with getting Aronofsky in to do comic books. Mm. Because he was Yeah, he was on The Wolverine. Mm. Batman vs. Superman. Warner Brothers abandoned J.J. Abrams' script for Superman Flyby, which had been greenlit with McGee to direct. Yes! Don't give McGee projects! Unless he fucked them up. Look, no, he's done one good project that I will stand by. Chuck. Supernatural? And that's it. Ah, okay. He's okay on TV then? Yeah. Okay. Don't just get him off the cinema. Clearly, he can't hack it. Uh, he dropped out in favour of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. One of others approached Wolfgang Peterson to direct Superman Flyby. However, in August 2001, Andrew Kevin Walker pitched one of others an idea titled Batman vs. Superman, attaching Peterson as director. Superman Flyby was... Who thought that the guy who directed The Perfect Storm could do a Superman film? And Akiva Goldsman was hired to rewrite Walker's Batman vs. Why? Why would you hire the guy who, who wrote Batman and Robin and Batman Forever... To, to write Batman vs. Superman. He can't write! He, but can't he makes do it. excellent coffee and cake, which all <laughs> the execs really liked. He's got lovely hair. And he's Bear, gonna... <laughs> Bear in mind, this is Hollywood. It does not re- work oh. like the real world. It is just one of those facts. How else can you explain a lot of things that happen in Hollywood? It's Fantasyland. I, I saw Bowfinger the other day, and it's a film from 1999, and it seems like Hollywood at that point, I don't know if it still is now, is stuck in the 30s, where everyone was still contract players. So we could talk for ages about how Hollywood uh, is in a, a state of arrested development and doesn't want to move forwards, because it's terrifying for them. 
Yes and no. I think what you have to remember that studios aren't there to make movies. They're there to make money. And that's what makes things make sense when you look at strange decisions. Yeah, but, but Eva Goldsman doesn't make money. Eva, that doesn't make sense. Batman and Robin made less than its predecessors. There's no one else out there who can write a Batman script. Clearly, he doesn't know Batman. Oh, no, no, he clearly doesn't. But the thing <laughs> is, they will go with someone who's written... Yeah. Before instant- this man has experience. Yes, it's it's the strange thing is they will pick a screenwriter they will look at it and go look. We we can see proof of concept. This man is a terrible writer of Batman. They'll go. Ah, he's, he's done it before. Goldsman's draft dated June twenty first, oh two, had Bruce Wayne going through a mental breakdown after his five year retirement from crime fighting. Dick Grayson, Alfred Pennyworth, and Commissioner Gordon are all dead, but Bruce's depressed emotions become resolved with fiance Elizabeth Miller. Meanwhile, Clark Kent is struggling because of a recent divorce with Lois Lane. Clark and Bruce are close friends, and Clark is Bruce's best man. After the Joker kills Elizabeth on the honeymoon, Bruce plots his revenge scheme, while Clark tries to hold him back. In return, Bruce blames Clark for her death, and the two go against one another. Part of the script took place in Smallville, where Clark goes into exile with Lana Lang. However, Lex Luthor is held to be responsible for the entire plot of Batman and Robert. Sorry, the entire plot of Batman and Superman... (laughs) destroying each other. The two decide to team up and stop Luther. Christian Bale and Josh Hartnett had turned down the roles of Batman and Superman. I think Josh Hartnett would have been a good Superman. Wow. He that heavily rumoured. He was heavily rumoured when they did Returns as well. Yeah. Bale, who was also approached to play Batman in the unmade Batman Year One, would eventually portray him in the same role Batman Begins. Principal photography was to start in early 2003 with plans for a five to six month shoot. The release date was set for mid-2004. Within a month of Warner Brothers greenlighting Batman vs Superman, Peterson left in favour of Troy, which was rubbish. Warner Brothers decided to move forward on Superman Flyby and on a Batman reboot. A fictional billboard for the film could be seen in the background, I was just about to mention this, of the 2007 Warner Brothers film I Am Legend. Peterson and Brian Singer are interested in directing the project sometime in the future with Bale as Batman. That may need to be updated slightly. Okay. Which brings us to 2005's Batman Begins. That seems long and extraneous, but it really, we needed to do that to show that all of the stuff that was happening in eight years and what, ultimately, what bad films could have happened instead of this. Um, so yeah, back to my original statement about the, the, the notion that this film was originally designed to fill in the blanks in Batman's comic career. Now, with The Dark Knight Rises... Oh, by the way, the rule for these next two shows, we are not allowed to speculate on The Dark Knight Rises, because this show is going out same day as the previews. So we're already going to look stupid if we make any kind of speculation which is wrong. So there's no point. However, what I can say is that these two films have become uh, universe in and of themselves very distinct from the comics and the games. So it's not like this film fills in the blanks of you know what then goes on to be the comic Batman. This is, to everyone, the Nolan Batman. This film, um, Batman Begins particularly, I feel like we are so lucky to have, based on all the films that you were talking about there mm-hmm. before, and especially based on uh, Warner Brothers' recent efforts to bring some of their other superheroes to the big screen. I mean, Superman Returns isn't a, a complete um, abysmal film, but it's not that great. Uh, Green Lantern was a pile of uh, dog shit. Um 
and so I'm thinking, wow, this really was a fluke. <laughs> we were goddamn lucky that Christopher Nolan got attached to this project because who knows what could have happened. I, I don't know how Nolan got so much control over these films. I don't know if he had a fair bit of control over the first one, which let him have the more control over the second one because it really worked because hearing those stories and seeing what they've done, they've done with like the other heroes, it's like, wow, we somehow got the lucky one here. So I'm, I'm quite happy because those stories you just read off in most of the proposed movies are so terrible. There's an episode of South Park uh, about the economy. Randy Marsh goes to see the head bankers of America and they're making their decisions by cutting the head off a chicken and letting it run around on a board and what it lands on when it dies, they make, that's their decision. That seems to be the decisions that were made by the studios over the interim eight years. And I'm just amazed that the chicken never landed on green light let's go with this thing i have to say i was um i w- i'm not as big a fan as i am now but i was definitely had my eye on christopher nolan as a director at the time because the guy had made some great films previous to batman begins uh, memento and insomnia were both really great mm. um but neither of which maybe memento uh, but i didn't feel the these films really said okay this guy can make great like blockbuster um superhero film I, obviously that statement would be stupid to say now nolan's previous work were very much like dramas or psychological thrillers before well, this don't discount the prestige that actually had quite a few elements in it which which uh, the prestige similar. came after batman begins though didn't ah it? hang on let me just talk to you yes about it, it did i did right okay um uh, Although I feel like this this stuff, um, the the elements of Memento, uh, although it didn't show off his blockbuster chops, that kind of psychological analysis of uh, characters and stuff like that really fed into Batman Begins and especially The Dark Knight. And th- I think I think for me this is what gives those films. Um, it's their strength is that Christopher Nolan has such a great understanding of characters, um, their psychology and their motivations. Yeah, it's another world to the previous Batman films. If you compare this to say, Batman Forever, it's like, see, I, I can't believe they're even the same medium in terms of how much thought went into Batman Begins and how much razzmatazz went into the Schumacher films. Well, it's, it's kind of strange, and I'm going to get shouted out when I say this. It, it, it. Nolan sort of looked and went, right, let's take this character, this comic book character, let's take the essence of what he is, and let's see what happens if we put it in a real, a realistic world. No, no, um, I shouted you down on, on Arkham Asylum in terms of realistic. <laughs> this is the closest to realistic, I think, Batman. I, Batman can't get more realistic than this, uh, otherwise it would be a weird black comedy about a man who dresses up like a superhero and fails, because, quite simply, the odds are so stacked against him. Wouldn't this is about as realistic as... Yeah, basically, Kick-Ass is the only more realistic Batman film. This, And even that has a heightened sense of stylization. But um, this is... No, you're right, Neil. Realistic. And I... Because the pendulum swung this far up, I don't think it's ever going to be able to go get this far towards realism again. I think people are going to want a more stylized Batman for quite some time. I think it had to swing this far up, though. After the atrocity that was Batman and Robin, mm. it had to go in such an opposite direction from 
anything that had been done before the Burton verse style and the Schumacher style it had to go this complete opposite direction and they put it in the hands of someone who went right I know what I'm doing I know how to do this trust me and we got Batman Begins I didn't even know about this I I was so off of Batman because of Batman and Robin mm. I never even knew they were filming uh, Batman Begins at all my first experience of even knowing about this <laughs> believe it or not was I think it was we went to see Alien vs Predator yeah, you, saw, you mentioned this on the AVP shows, yeah. And there was a trailer for this, and about halfway through the trailer, I twigged on what it was. All I did was go, holy shit, finally! This is Batman! <laughs> it was like, hope, it springs eternal! It's a neat teaser as well, because it doesn't immediately throw it up there, and it doesn't sort of show the Batman bat imagery for a while. No, and I think it really was the way they had to go, because... It has funny moments in it. I mean, my favourite line from this movie is a throwaway line of, does it come in black? Yeah. <laughs> my favourite is, the tumbler? Oh, you wouldn't be interested in that. And then again, when, when Jim Gordon goes, i got to get me one of those. Just everything around the tumbler. I mean, that's the only real nod to ridiculousness in this film. Yeah, that tumbler is... It's crazy. It, it, in that world, it defies logic. I'm it's sorry. It's a jet-propelled tank. With a stealth mode. Mm. Uh, the stealth mode, by the way, is just turning off the lights. And it was like, <gasps> he disappeared! Anyway, scripting. David Goya. Blade, oh, I believe, he was responsible yes. for. He wrote the scripts for the first two, or for all three Blade films, and directed the third. So the third was atrocious. He, it's astonishing that this script came from the same guy. Well, it's also written by... Is it Nolan's brother as well? No, it's Christopher Nolan and David S. Goya. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, The Dark Knight was screenplay by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan. Ah, No Goya on Dark Knight. Story was by David S. Goya. The actual screenplay was by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan together. The fact that they got Nolan on, you can see from what you said earlier about Aronofsky and everything else, and they were looking in that sort of direction, because he was... Mm. Maybe not indie filmmaker, but certainly that side of things. Mm. And then you look at... I'm just trying to think what Marvel movies had come out by this point. I think we're pretty much looking at Spider-Man. Spider-Man, X-Men, uh, X-Men uh, 2. And Blade. Um, Don't forget Hulk, that Hulk was trying to be super serious as well. And if you look at those, okay, particularly Hulk and Spider-Man, they gave them two directors. Mm. Yeah, yes. Whatever you say about Ang Lee's Hulk... Ang Lee, you know, he's, a, he's that kind of director. Mm. Sam Raimi for Spider-Man. They, were, they gave them to people with... You know, they, they ha always had a vision in the films they were making. Yes. And whereas Joel Schumacher maybe did in his past, but not so much with these ones. Mm. Um, I don't know what the studio involvement was like with these ones either, but it seems to have been less. I, not only does it seem they backed up throughout the series and gave him more power as it, it, they went along, he's become the godfather to the DC universe now. So he o he is going to be overseeing, in the same way that John Lasseter oversees creative production uh, at Disney, um, he will be making sure that, well, let's just say shit like Green Lantern doesn't happen again. Yes yeah. and no, because he's, he, he's sort of been in control of Man of Steel and that's about it. Uh, okay, well, so... You know what, we shall see when that one comes out. Then. I think Jeff Johns at DC is heavily involved in the universe now as well. All oh, right. I suppose he'd be the equivalent of um, 
I Kevin think he's Feige. the chief creative officer or something like that. So right. can I? I'll throw a crazy idea. Out. Yeah, sure. You know how um, was it? Brad Bird directed Mission Impossible Four. Yeah. 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 Why don't we put Bruce Tim in charge? He seems to have a fairly good idea of how this works. I'd love to see that film. I would really. I would love to see that the animated series crew all put together and. Maybe not necessarily Bruce Tim directing, but not directing. But if he was like the kind of guy that was in charge and overseeing things, yeah, to bring us the classic Batman from the animated series because stuff. I think that's the way it's going to point for the next series. Effectively, yeah, I, uh, Avi Arad for the Spider-Man side of things. And not only that, I think it's the change that sort of happened that when we got Batman Begins and Iron Man and Dark Knight. Yeah. The studios sort of went, oh, if we take this a little bit more seriously, yeah. although that still doesn't forgive Green Lantern. Yeah, that was a blitz. It's still like, not seen that yet. Big I'm Green Lantern fan and I hate it. I <laughs> think what studio, studio execs started to realise was that the name sells itself. You don't yeah. need to get stars or famous directors on board. You get the right people for the job and people will go to see it regardless because... It's Iron Man, it's Batman, it's Spider-Man. We're going to see it, of course we're going to see it. Mm. And if the first one makes a large amount of money, the second one should, by all rights. It's now the opposite of the law of diminishing returns. At yeah. the moment. At the moment. with Batman Begins, I don't... How else do you explain goddamn Transformers? Don't I, remind I don't... me! I'm sorry. <laughs> but that at least helps us with Avengers 2. He has I... a three-picture deal with Satan too. Yeah. Um, I don't think I saw this one until it came out on DVD, actually. Wow, what? did? Actually, now that you mention that, I will mention this. Dark Knight, as we know, legendary, ex- insane amounts of bank, $185 million budget, uh, $1 1.1 1.1 basically. And Batman Begins, $150 million budget, $372 million. That's about a third. Now, as we've said before, there is a certain amount of rubbernecker factor in there. People wanting to go and see Heath Ledger's last performance. A certain amount of people were like, okay, right, now it's the Joker. Now I'm interested. And also a certain amount of people were, were kind of wary about Batman Begins when it started. And they were like, oh, it looks a bit serious for me. And I've heard that it's not really good for the kids. And so they had to wait till it came out on DVD. And thus, like Austin Powers, it got discovered on DVD. And then people flocked to the sequel. And with Dark Knight, there was also a certain amount of, fuck me, that was awesome, I'm going again. That is very true. That is very true. That's why I said that's how Avengers managed to get its huge bank. People were going back. Yeah. Yeah. Always helps if you can make them laugh. Okay, so, yeah, scripting. Well, we'll talk about that as it goes through. First thing that hits you about this movie. First thing. Anybody? The score? I was going to say the music. The music.
when I first heard it, I was like, oh, because I was hoping for sort of a Danny Elfman style, something like a, with an obvious hummable tune, which you can go da 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 da. Um, however, this single piece of music went on to not only be something that would stick in people's heads, but would influence scores for the next, well, it's been, what, seven years now? And it's still going. Batman Begins and the Bourne films are the most influential scores of the past ten years. I remember watching this, and much like you, I was like, uh, okay, this is all right, this is quite atmospheric, but I'm, it's not particularly memorable. But as the years have gone by... This has become as iconic, if not more so, than Danny Elfman's score. Mm. And I feel like it's less about... Because with Danny Elfman's score, it's very much about making that like theme for Batman. Yeah. Whereas with Hans Zimmer's score, it feels like he's trying to make an iconic soundscape, if that makes any sense. Because yeah. that opening music feels like a bat batting its wings. Yes, I was just about to say that. And... And also, uh, well, I won't go into The Dark Knight, but you know what I mean. It's about making those soundscapes that you associate with characters mm. rather than having that like musical theme that you key into. And it does um, build up through the film as well. You, towards the end of the film, you do start getting the more... Operatic scores. Operatic, triumphant yeah. element to the music. Let's not forget James Newton Howard as well. He um, was present for these first two. He doesn't appear to be present for the third one, but he provided some of the more thought-provoking, emotional pieces of music in this. It builds up, and it builds up all the way through, and towards the end, um, particularly in the the whole narrow section with Mm. the gas, you start getting more of a... less of an ambient sort of soundscape Mm. and more into a triumphant... Yeah, yeah, rousing score. The momentum of the film hangs on the music even more for The Dark Knight. But when it starts, it's got this kind of feeling, and it kind of it propels you through the whole thing. And it's like I say with The Dark Knight, we'll talk about that next week. But it's got this kind of feeling of all things are going on, they're going on. And it also, because of the way that it's directed, it feels like the whole film is a montage or memories, or the whole film is just what Bruce is thinking about at the very end, and he's thinking about the key moments that brought him to this point. I think that's what um, Nolan's intention was, that the whole thing would, would play out like lucid memories. I'd agree with that for the first half of the film, because from a storytelling point of view, they, they go that interesting route of having what's sort of going on now, True. With flashing back to the events that led him to where he was, and it sort of intercuts between that. Okay, yes, actually, quite yes, interesting. The first part. Obviously, later on, there are events which he was not party to as well. That kind of fits in with one of the comics they cite as an influence as well. Which were the comics? Um, List them for us. Um, year One. Yep. The Long mm-hmm. Halloween. Yep. And The Man Who Falls. Ah. which is a, a 1989 one by um, Denny O'Neill and Dick Giordano, and it was a series of short stories, yeah, retellings of previously published stories from a slightly different angle. So things like Falling Down the Well, um, his training when he left Gotham City, mm. some time with um, a bounty hunter named um, Henry Descartes. Ah! <laughs> nice. Um, and a few things from... Uh, Legends of the Dark Knight and things like that all all tied in and just retold as short stories. 
hard for me to actually get involved with the other previous set, largely because it was tinged with nostalgia, especially when it was Batman and Robin. It was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I spent money on this thing. <laughs> I really, honestly, I looked back and I went, oh my word, no. I'm ashamed but, too. There were so many good films that came out that same year, which I didn't go see. I know, it was just like, ah, dang. But when I saw this one, I was like, wow. Just in terms of the, the, the feel compared to all the, the Elfmans and the Schumachers, the feel was just so different. The Burtons and the Schumachers. Danny Elfman may have done the score. I know, Burtons and Schumachers, sorry. sorry. I always think of Danny Elfman when I think of the um, Burton mm. movies. Well, he is pretty much joined at the waist with the guy. Yeah. It's more of an atmospheric soundtrack. It's just the way it's portrayed. It's less, it is more about as close as really as you can get compared to all the rest which is more gothic or fantastical and it's just felt a lot more like I said closer to reality than it was not even hyper real at some points but okay so was there any other previous Batman story where he trained with the League of Shadows Paul I'm thinking you or me um, this one probably most likely to know I'm just trying to think yeah. as far as I know no but don't hold me to that isn't Ra's al Ghul's um, league called the League of Assassins in the comic book universe, not the League of Shadows? Yep. Or am I... A, no, you're right. It's yeah. a ridiculous name, though. Yeah, but yeah, that kind of gives the game is. away, though, if they call it's it the League of like Assassins. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Why would you call yourself that? <laughs> the Assassin's League. They're so secret, no one even knows about them. Now, also, the League of Shadows implies something far more reaching than just killing the right people at the right times. Yeah. Even if it is simply down yeah. to that, it gives them much more of a scary name. I've got to say, this was a masterstroke, actually weaving these guys in with the conception of Batman itself. The notion that they are the even more shadowy reflection of what Batman does at his most positive that they affect civilizations, uh, and that just, Bruce is a non-killing version of them. I've just had a look. One of the stories in The Man Who Falls wasn't the League of Assassins or Shadows, but it was um, him training at a monastery in a mountainous region of Korea. With a League of Shadowy Assassins? With, yeah, with some... It, not quite, but close enough. One question. Was anyone not taken in by... Ducard, the secret identity of Ras al Ghul. I would say I was because obviously now I've played him, obviously Yarkums, mm. and also seen what he actually looks like in the comics. If I mm. knew what he looked like in the comics, to be like Ras al Ghul. Clearly, I haven't seen. I didn't actually haven't actually seen the characters. I wouldn't notice gotcha. the goatee, the haircut, the beard yeah. gave it away. As I've said on uh, previous podcasts. Um, it was about this time when I was starting to really get into Batman. Like, I'd mm -hmm. seen the animated series um, as a young kid, but I I was still a bit of a noob, um, to use a simple term, to uh, to this universe. So I actually had no idea who Ra's al Ghul was. Mm. Um, so uh, all the way through this film, I just took Liam Neeson at his word. Oh, okay, you're Ducard, fine. Uh, let's go on. And when they killed, seemingly killed Ra's al Ghul right at the start. I was like, oh, okay, that was uh, pretty quick. Uh, let's move on to the Scarecrow, shall we? And I was convinced that then the Scarecrow was going to be the main villain for the rest of the film. Mm. Obviously, that's not the case. 
I am positively ashamed that I was taken in. I did know who Raz Al Ghul was. I'd read Hush at this point. It made no sense to me. Now, thinking back on it, why did I not think, well, clearly it's Liam Neeson. Clearly it's not Ken Watanabe, the, uh, the guy who's... Uh, it has become a place of inequity and injustice, like Constantinople or Rome before it, and must be allowed to die. He's like a cartoon villain, or a Bond villain or something like that. Yes, and he gets so, taken up like a punk. But he's so deliciously evil when he delivers that that you, it works. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he, he's great. But I, 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 I'm astonished that I didn't think, well, clearly Liam Neeson, who looks like Ra's al Ghul, talks like Ra's al Ghul, has every reason to be Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, don't, don't worry, you're not the only one. I think I did as well. I mean, like you, I'd seen the animated series. I had read the comic books. I should have known. I didn't see it coming. So when it actually happened, it's like, Oh, but that was cool. But but yeah, no, it, it, it's, it doesn't in any way detract from the, the film itself, which uh, actually really now I like Liam Neeson's performance. So it's uh, he's intense and uh, angry and, and at the same time controlled, and it's he's got a real presence to him, and it feels like he could be Bruce's equal. Well, he for me, uh, Ra's al Ghul's character in this film is like the complete opposite end of where the Joker's at. The Joker's mm. an agent of chaos, where as mm. Ra's al Ghul is an agent of supreme order, but he takes it to an extreme that's yeah. insane in its own right. Um, and Batman is the balance between that. He he wants to maintain order, but he doesn't do anything that's irreversible. He doesn't destroy things he only uh, returns it to a state of balance and equality but if he's closer to anything he's closer to race uh, oh yeah absolutely. he's closer to ras yeah one one of the things that i love is um how they focus on this connection that he and ras seem to have while they're training i mean out of everybody mm. ras seems to take on bruce as a mentor um, yeah. as a student sorry so fairly clever with that as well because the the Descartes character from the comics was a father figure to Bruce while he was training nice and it kind of fits in with that and so even if I did know the comics I'd have been like oh I like what they did with Descartes there yeah it it kind of makes sense and actually a link back to the earlier films Um, Descartes was introduced in a comic called Blind Justice written by Sam Hamm Sam Hamm comic book fan exactly Shame <laughs> it wasn't called Blind Fury. I could make another link, but hey, <laughs> this blind justice. Okay, oh, Roger Howard, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Who was in it Batman was. Begins? <laughs> Actually, this this film is brimming over with bad guys. You got uh, Ra's al Ghul. You got Scarecrow. Mister Zaz is in there, as we mentioned a few weeks ago. Yep. Carmine Falcone, the Roman. Now, I like Tom Wilkinson. As a British man, I don't know why it is that he keeps getting picked for these American roles, but for his, his performance in this and Michael Clayton, he's just this sort of scenery-chewing American guy. Well, the funny thing is, if you look at this movie, this is the British invasion. Mm. We yes, have so many Brits in this, and Irish. Not only Brits in this, but we sort of taken over their superheroes. Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Mm. He- uh, is it um, Henry, Henry Cavill? Cavill. Mm. <laughs> Superman. English. Yep. Batman English. <laughs> like, no, with Christian Bell, the way he does um, interviews, he always tends to emulate the accent of the character he's doing. And every time he's cast as American, he's speaking in an American accent. 
Uh, see, look, I can't do that. <laughs> I should neither be hired for the same rules, the same worlds as Tom Wilkinson. Uh, by all means, hire Tom Wilkinson. He's a great British actor. But it's just like when Jason Statham does an American accent. It's like just, just let him be a Brit. Carmen Falcone is is your classic Sicilian style bad guy. He's like mafia. So, with so many classically trained Italian actors out there, why did Tom Wilkinson get the job? He's not threatening in the least. It kind of feels like Christopher Nolan's calling in favours for this film. It's like <laughs> all my British act because you know Batman. You, you have you forget net these days, but um, Batman's name was pretty much in the dirt at this point as movies uh, go. Yeah. So I, I can't. I, I, I imagine a lot of actors were kind of resistant to get involved in this project. And Christopher Nolan being a British filmmaker, it kind of makes sense that there are so many British actors in this film. Mm. Well, actually, aren't all of the major characters pretty much British actors? Or Apart Irish. from Katie Holmes, Apart who sticks out like Holmes, a sore yes. thumb. <laughs> no, no, seriously, Katie Holmes is a lovely girl, but Maggie Gyllenhaal's <laughs> Rachel is far more compelling as a character. I like her a lot more in that. She seems genuinely condescending and to leap to crazy conclusions in this. Now, that's possibly a fault of the script, but I am not a fan of Rachel in this. Yeah, I, I think Katie Holmes's performance is... I wouldn't describe her as terrible. She's okay. But... Um, Compared to Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's, you know, Oscar-caliber actress, it's kind mm. of weak. Uh, I also do feel very sorry for Katie Holmes about what happened to her very shortly after this. Um, but uh, maybe she's out now. I, ca- I can really only hope for the best. Fuck you, Scientologists. Okay, right. And there's getting sued. I don't care. Sue me. I dare you. I agree, sir. <laughs> oh, it's not. I'm not saying I don't agree. I'm the German in South Park on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, sir. Yeah. Christian Bale as Bruce. He's passable as Bruce. He's not passable. I I think that's really unfair. I was. A, it's really weird because I was about to say he's the best Bruce Wayne ever. Okay, so. no, let's let's hear Neil out. Okay. I don't know. It's just every time he's being sort of Bruce, I'm sort of not that interested in him. I don't know why. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm trying to think of an actor who would have been more compelling in the, the, the same role, same script. It's, it's, it's a question of intensity. And as far, it seems like Bale has an intensity meter and he keeps it at maybe six or seven for Bruce and 11 for Batman. I mean, I'm probably being unfair. There's moments where he does shine and there's moments where it's a bit like, OK, get on with it. You know, it's more when it, it this well... Mind you, I think that's probably because... I was about to say, it's the scenes with Alfred, but then again, it's probably because, you know, Michael Caine shows up and goes, yeah, you know this scene? I'm stealing it. But... Yeah, he does do that. But it is important to note, before you go, Josh, that very no other actor that I can think of, actually, has had to really deal with Bruce when he is 
dealing with this stuff right mm. now in the immediate. And he's actually going through the uh, transformation into Batman, except for that guy who did the really flat reading in Batman Year One that I've already forgotten. You see, for me, um, Bale's performance is a very internal performance, even though he's not anywhere near as animated or theatrical as Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight. Mm. But it's all in his face and in his eyes. Um, there's the conversation that him and Ducard have, because he's rubbing his chest because he's fallen into a frozen lake. Mm. And um, Ducard is talking about revenge and what happened to his wife. And mm. Bale looks up, up at him and you can see the pain and the trauma in his eyes. And that, for me, is what Batman's all about. It's not about him being this big animated character. It's about seeing that inner struggle within him but having this stone wall between you and him because he's not going to show his enemies that emotion underneath we're going through the whole gamut of batman becoming batman Mm -hmm. so it's not so much about being like for example michael keaton from the early movies was more slightly more theatrical as well as stan um the ones in the schumachers weren't really theatrical they're kind of it well this one is more intense and you kind of see over this and the Dark Knight, you see a kind of merging of Batman and Bruce Wayne and how they slowly start becoming the one, one and the same. There's various different emotional aspects explored throughout the film, and so many of them point to the notion that Bruce Wayne has become the mask that he wears, uh, and, and that ultimately he's, he's Batman full-time. He just dials it down a bit when he has to rest, and that's it. It's kind of like podcasting for me. <laughs> Is this going to turn into one of those weird psychoanalytical podcasts? Maybe so, and that would be interesting if it did. Right. <laughs> so, anger, guilt, death, and fear. It explores the uh, notion that um, Bruce feels guilty for his own fear that drew his parents out of the opera Deflator Mouse, which, by the way, for some reason backs onto the Narrows, the most horrible, depressing part of Gotham. I don't get that. Surely it should be in the well-to-do section. Well, the beggars would hang out where the people who were likely to drop money and not notice would be, surely. Maybe so. And that's, that's, that's the back end, which is presumably they've gone out through the fire exit. One could ask why Thomas Wayne did not take his family out through the main door. It was... Te- oh, hang on, no, Paul could attest to this one. It wasn't called Crime Alley at that point, was it? <laughs> I they changed so. it to Crime Alley after the Waynes got shot there. Yeah, I, I believe that's actually your joke. I think that's actually what happened. It was called something else uh, before then. Oh uh, yeah, it was Park Row. <laughs> Park Row, yeah. It, he says later on in the film, although, yes, he is gu- guilty about this moment, he says at one point in the film that now my anger outweighs my guilt. He does, yes. Yeah, and that, that's kind of common uh, in a lot of cases of trauma where people go through a phase of just, like, you know, depression and blaming themselves, but then they become really... have anger management issues and stuff like that. It it seemed like a very organic reaction to something that happened so early in his life. The notion of fear is also uh, explored over and over again throughout the film. It's, uh, It's key to the Scarecrow. Now, the fact that the Scarecrow kept popping up again and again and again in the uh, concepts of various Batman films between Batman and Robin and this one, to me suggests a little bit of casting about and going, right, who haven't we done? We've done Joker, we've done Catwoman, we've done Penguin, we've done Poison Ivy, 
the the Riddler, Two Face, Mister Freeze, and Bane. You haven't done most of these characters, frankly. <laughs> But we've done approximations of them in a carnival style, um, so who can we do next? So, Ra's al Ghul and, and Scarecrow are pretty much the only major ones left. But what I think separates this from something like Spider-Man 3, which is an absolute mess of a movie, mm. every character serves a role in this screenplay, yeah. and they're all neatly tied together as well. It's not like, oh, Sandman, he's there, oh, and Venom... Oh, and Harry Osborn as well. well we have yeah. to put him in. Well, the key difference is that the, the villains, quote unquote, the antagonists in this film are not being put in there because they're visually stunning. Yeah. And then they Killian Murphy with a bag on his head. <laughs> One of the things that they really captured is when something big happens in Batman's life, a lot of villains are involved. Yeah. It's always someone's pulling everybody's string. Yeah. Yeah, and and through this one, it, it is obviously each one's kind of working for the level above without necessarily knowing who they're working for as well. They just know there's someone bigger out there and they have to do what they say. Yeah. There's always a bigger fish. I, I think, <laughs> ah, nice. <laughs> I think it helps the movie, uh, though, that the only origin story we have is Batman's. Um, all the other villains are there's there is a backstory for them, but it's suggested in the the film rather than shown to us, mm. um, which I think helps give the film a bit a, a lot pace. It's a lot pacier because of it. So we get we get the even though for me it's actually the most interesting part of the film. We get the origin story origin story over with, and then we just get into the meat of the story. We don't have to explain why every character's there, like, yeah. again, Spider-Man 3 did. All of the uh, previous Batman films did actually have an origin. Even Two-Face gets a little bit of a newsreel showing how he became who he was, as though it's super important as to why someone dresses like this carnival character. So far, the Nolan films haven't done that for any of their antagonists, because it's actually scarier if we don't know. Except one, but we'll get on to that in the next film. Yeah, I was just going to say. Ah, yeah, no, good point. Very good point. So let's talk about Batman himself. Now, this is something that a lot of people have bitched about. Uh, Bale's portrayal of Batman. They all tend to hinge on the voice. They go, why is he talking like he's got throat cancer? Why is he talking so rough and so loud? And even Batman fans are like, well, yeah, that, that, that's pretty loud and raucous. <laughs> Not well, as bad as Dark Knight. <laughs> No, no, I, I, well, I mean just this, this series. It's, oh, it's, in the series. It's, it's pretty harsh in this, but it's really harsh in Dark Knight. We'll, we'll talk about the, the raising the stakes in Dark Knight, but it actually is present in this as well. It gets more over the course of the film as well. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first time you really see him in action as Batman with the, um, the drug bust. Yeah. He whispers at them Where when he speaks. Here. Yeah, and that's it. It's over. And as he goes through, it gets... Mm. More when gravelly talks, and louder. He talks to Rachel at the uh, train station. He actually sounds relatively normal, though somewhat intimidating. 
Yeah. Yeah, and no, then... I was about to say that scene uh, where he's talking to Rachel, I thought he got it perfect. Mm. And if he if was that for the entire series. That. I mean, ultimately, he, he could do the swear to me when he's intimidating people. But what, what puzzled me is that he does it when he's just talking to Gordon and Harvey on the roof in The Dark Knight. And it's like, you don't have to talk like that. You can talk like a normal person. Or in a normal, you can you could level it. Ultimately, it, it, you've shown it before. You could still talk in a deep voice without going way down on it. Wait, he just sounds like a crazy person. And Bale himself has dis- has described himself as Batman, as playing it like a beast. And I completely see where he's coming from with that. He's become this kind of wild elemental animal, a creature that has become part of the architecture of Gotham. If there's that key shot where it sort of pans around the tower and he's standing like a gargoyle. Which is, it's, it's really odd because you're looking at it and it look, it's, it's too realistic a scene in a moment. And you're thinking, hang on, I've seen this done sort of much more pantomime in the Burton and the Schumacher films, and yet this is still happening here. And, and, it, and for some reason he does camouflage him with this Gotham, and for a moment, you don't even really spot him. The, the interesting thing, uh, when I was watching Begins Today, the doc scene, the drug bust, is mm. how they change, uh, Nolan changes the way he shoots that. He goes from shooting, as we've seen it, and he turns that one little section almost into a horror movie. Yeah. And it works so well, because I'm thinking, if you did a Batman movie where you weren't going to follow Batman, that's how you should do it. Yeah. You know, but from the scene I, of the guy just going up to the crate and then just being pulled in and then just never really seeing him. Like a slasher film. Yeah. I think that scene is great because it gives you an, an appre- uh, appreciation of how skilled Batman is. Mm. And it gives you an idea of what it's actually like to fight against this person. Yeah. It's just this monster that you can't see and you can't touch because one moment he's there and he's gone and it's terrifying. Just imagine playing Arkham Asylum or Arkham City, but you're playing one of those boobs wandering around. Imagine, you know, Batman's up on the rafters and swinging around the place, and like, and they're just like, vertical takedown. They, really, that is... Uh, I'd shit my pants. <laughs> I swear that is where they got the inspiration from, because that scene yeah, is probably. like Arkham. There's a bit where, where he swings across, and you, and you can swear it's like he's going from gargoyle to gargoyle around the side. And even does get the vertical takedown in. Yeah. The closest thing I can think of would be something like Alien. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. They also don't really ever focus on Batman, in the, the, especially during the fight scenes. In Arkham City, for example, and we've played so much of this now recently, they, like, the, the camera pans in slow motion around Batman and he punches the guys and looks so awesome doing it. In the animated series, the camera loves him and he's, he's doing this acrobatic fighting. In this, KC, a martial art that was brand new at the time and was created by two guys uh, in order for one man to take out a, a team of like five, six guys all at once, incredibly fast. The camera's there, but he's just a blur and there's just bodies flying everywhere and he's punching and kicking and elbowing and headbutting. He's using every part of his body to take these guys down. And it's not graceful. It's not fun, really. It's not elegant or anything to look at. It's just total, brutal, effective combat. I think the, the fight scenes in particular share a lot with the Bourne series. Admittedly, mm, mm. he'll arm himself more often, but it's using what's there and just going for it. Yeah, and fighting extremely close range as well. Mm. And... Uh, 
And yeah, the guys are, just seem to be genuinely all over the place. It's, it's kind of like, I think Wolverine said something along the line, uh, lines of, you know, 10 guys versus me. That's pretty good odds. This, the notion that the more of them there are, the more chaotic the whole brawl can get. And he, all he has Step to do back is focus. And let them aim at each other. Yeah, all he has to do as, uh, as the, the single combatant is to focus on punching all of them as hard as possible in different areas of their bodies. They have to work out who he is and where he is and get in on him through various heaving muscular bodies. What's also interesting about that fight, um, watching it again, I noticed that at the beginning he takes out all the people with guns, a bit yeah. like Arkham City, and then mm. once all the people with guns are gone, he just jumps straight into the middle of the guys with crowbars and pipes and stuff like that and mm. kicks the shit out of all of them. It's like, I've gotten rid of the priority targets, now I can just have some fun, <laughs> to put it uh, lightly. But yeah, it was, it was really clever. The KC combat style, uh, when shot cinematically, is a antidote to the prevalence of 80s martial artists, usually American martial artists, who would get into barroom brawls where guys with pool cues would, uh, one at a time, attack him, screaming beforehand and telegraphing every single move, and so that he could go, right, I will kick you, and now you attack me, and I will kick from the left, and then I will do a flying kick on you. And it was, you know, great and entertaining in the 80s, but we've seen it so many times, and it doesn't look like it's actually real in the slightest. It's just so choreographed. I don't well, like I'll... object, but you're so right. <laughs> but it's true, though. It's the way, because I actually had a look into it when I heard about, um, obviously, it was um, help, um, on this one, um, and it's very much based on almost almost the same as Krav Maga in terms mm. of it's no messing about, it's elbow, headbutt. It's very all, economical. It's very economical about basically getting rid of your target as quickly as possible. I mean, I hate to say this because I am a big fan of martial arts, but most martial arts are actually derived from dance. Um, mm. And, mm. Uh, and I bending. enjoy that because I... <laughs> I'm a big fan of the art forms. I enjoy that kind of like traditional martial arts. But in an actual fight, and Descartes, not Descartes, sorry, Razal Ghul at the beginning says to Bruce Wayne when they're fighting each other, this is not a dance, and then headbutts him in the head. Because mm. Bruce, uh, Bruce Wayne at that point is using quite traditional martial arts to take him on. And you can take on a guy with that stuff, but it's not, it's not meant for fighting that stuff. It's meant as just an art form. If you want to fight somebody, you have to be a lot quicker, a lot more economical. And you don't do fancy kicks. Just kick him in the groin. Just headbutt <laughs> him in the head. You know, the, the yeah. it's, it's not about flashy moves. It's about the best move for that, in that particular moment. Yeah. The, the point of the martial arts that like Bruce starts out using uh, the tiger and stuff like that, it's a discipline. That's what martial arts is. That style is a discipline. It's to train. The, the stuff that he uses later on is exactly what it needs to be. It's that, take the targets down, quick as possible, done. He's got the discipline of the mind and the body from doing the, what he uses at the beginning, but he uses the effective stuff when he needs to. One thing that's always kind of bothered me about this Batman, and in fact, every Batman in every movie, is the all-black suit. Now, I know... Thank you that it's good for hiding in shadows. But in terms of urban camouflage, the grey and black actually isn't too bad. Maybe not the pants, maybe not the bright yellow utility belt and the bright yellow bat symbol on, on many of them, but I've always wanted to see the grey and dark blue 
uh, suit rendered into film, and it's just never happened. And um, this is something that if you recolored his suit in just the Arkham style, so it's just like really dark charcoal greys, that would actually be pretty close. Yeah, kind of like the the year one comics outfit with the grey suit with the black bat on the chest. He's meant to look ninja-like, but unfortunately ninja outfits were designed before streetlights. And yeah. they were also designed before gimp suits. And unfortunately, there is that slight link between Batman and fetish gear. Thank yeah, that, you, John. That, that is the biggest problem with the bat suits that they seem to do. They do seem to be these rubbery-looking things. Whereas the, I always get the feeling that the like the Arkham one is more like a Kevlar weave or something. It's a material more than a, a polymer. Well, it's woven very thin plates, but it looks more lightweight, and he's definitely much more agile in those games. So it, it, it wasn't until the middle of Dark Knight that he could even turn in his head. He's, I mean, if you remember the original Michael Keaton Batman mask, it was just this one single moulded bit of rubber. That You would die wearing that, quite simply. Someone would simply knife you in the back of the neck, and you're dead. Or you'd sweat to death before they got the opportunity. Yeah. It's, the earlier Batsuits were ridiculous. This one, again, like Iron Man, they try to make every component of it make sense. And like it was designed for a purpose. And Bruce Wayne seeks these elements out for his perfect suit. Actually, I've just had a horrible thought. But didn't they yeah. go with a slight blue tint to the suit in Batman and Robin? They did, yes. The second one. It's, it's not the same thing, though. No. <laughs> it's not the classic um, Denny O'Neill. No. One. It just makes it look like it was designed by Remington Steel. It's just the same thing, <laughs> slightly lighter, with nipples and a giant... Oh, stop, 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 stop. I'm sorry. Oh, gosh. Not those, not I was going to say, actually, is it, is it not the ears that makes it look slightly ridiculous? But then I imagined it without the ears and it looked even worse. Well, see, some of the... It, Batman's been incredibly intimidating in comic books, like Arkham Asylum, a uh, serious house on serious earth, with extremely long ears... He looks far more like this elemental spiritual wraith thing. But they're going to get caught on ceilings. (laughs) He's eventually, he's going to accidentally poke someone in the eye with one of them. Don't go anywhere with a rotary ceiling fan. The thing is with the ears in this one, they actually serve a purpose. Because you see Mm. him put in the the listening device, the bug thing, which I swear they borrowed from Batman Beyond. Mm. But, you know, there's that scene where I think Alfred just bashed the cow and they're going on about the problems with it. He picks up that piece and goes, oh, I can just put this in here. Ah, purpose. So, but that's when they order 10,000 cowls and then smash them up and go, oh, they're wrong, let's order 10,000 more, it's slightly different. What a waste. But it's so they can't well, be tracked. not for a billionaire. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, they do play a little fast and loose with what would and would not attract attention, but at least they nod towards it and go, ah, it's, it's cool, we're covering this up, we're, we're being clever about how we're putting this suit together. See, but it's is- very much like Iron Man in terms of how he puts this thing together. This is the thing. I don't think buying 10,000 of them looks less suspicious. If you order one or two, right, from an anonymous eBay account, then okay, that's just some weird gimp in the United States getting his end away. If you order 10,000 of them, then they start to take an interest. Oh, there could be a market for these. You get That's a final point. The billionaire spelunking market. Yeah, (laughs) with ears. Bale's chin is really big and really lantern and really impressive. So why the hell have they done their best to make it into this little bitty circle in the middle of his face? He looks like Homer Simpson. Uh, but I, I guess I was just I was raised on the animated series with that giant 
like brick of a chin. As so, they call it, the Bruce Campbell. Yeah, I, I can't really fathom why they would make a Batman cowl that's quite so restrictive and it looks like it's pinching his little face. Well, well the, it, the it, actual- it's the same with um, any kind of 2D art, though. What looks really good it, animated or in a comic book doesn't necessarily translate to real life. I mean, you you just have to look at an anime con with all the people with spiky hair and think, yes. oh, oh that was a terrible in real life. Um, but I will say of this, of, of Bell's Batman, it validated everyone who was serious about Batman. That's key, because up till now, all we'd had was animated versions which took it seriously. Freeman as Lucius Fox. It's a small role, but I adore this man. I, I don't think he, Morgan Freeman has ever been funnier and almost never uh, quite as lovable. He's got, like, every line of his is a pearl. He's just this sort of old, dryly humoured man who's... I mean, Lucius Fox was never even mentioned in the previous Batman films and barely even the animated series. He's been there in Batman's history, but it took Morgan Freeman to, to, make, to bring, make him into a real character in people's minds. Gee, we've got this little small character. Who shall we get to cast? You know, you, you think they'll just give it to a little actor? No, we'll get Morgan Freeman. We'll get God. Yeah, God himself. Interesting. Jack Nicholson ushered in Batman to begin with, the devil himself. And this reboot, you get God. Nice. Good work. The bucket list. Um, I really like uh, Lucius's role in this film because I feel it gives some legitimacy to a lot of the fantastical elements of Batman, like the grapple hook and the Batmobile and stuff like that. It makes sense that these things are like R&D projects that have been in the back burner of uh, Wayne Enterprises for ages. Invent them on the spot. I need a car. Batmobile. Yeah. Yeah. and it also, like, the Tumblr's a great example of that. Even though the concept's slightly mad, mm. um, it still makes sense that, like, oh, we need this vehicle to bridge wide gaps to get tanks across so we'll have this, like, super agile tank. Mm. Um, and stuff like and the and, and the cape as well. The idea of this um, memory cloth that uh, is normal and flexible but run an electric current through it and suddenly it's rigid, which mm. makes the... The bat wings that he has later on make a lot more sense because in previous adaptations he just does that and there's no explanation for why suddenly sure, his flappy yeah. little cape was rigid. He's got a folded up glider under there. One of the things I do love about Lucius Fox, he's also a link to Bruce's father's um, representation of how things used to be. Like yeah. he's, he's, He was part of... Um, is it Peter? 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 Thomas Wayne. Thomas Wayne, sorry. Oh, shame on you. How many of these have you been on? <laughs> He's very much part of Thomas Wayne's um, movement and belief of making Gotham a better place. And yeah. he represents... He's a representation of what has happened to Thomas's views. He's been locked away, put away in 
basically out of sight, out of mind in his own company. I like the fact that he, he pretty much works out straight away what Bruce is up to as well. Just gives you the, is it, um, uh, whatever you do, don't think I'm an idiot. And I always like the payoff with Lucius as well. Didn't you get the memo? The other man we haven't really talked about much, and just only because every time you mention him, Neil, steal scenes and that's it. But Michael Caine is so much the heart of this film as Alfred. Yes, he steals scenes. He's also incredibly sweet-natured and heartfelt. And, again, he's a link to, to Bruce's past. He's a link to Thomas and Martha. And he's a character representation of the best intentions of Bruce Wayne, and indeed for Bruce Wayne. All he wants is for this this boy that he's raised to come through alive, well, and hopefully sane. But at the same time, he will help him along with this crazy Don Quixote vision of his for cleaning up Gotham, even though it puts him in danger, because ultimately he can see in Bruce that it's what he considers right. It's validation. It's key to Bruce. Believe me, I wasn't saying he was steaming scenes in a bad way. It was just mm. the fact he, when he comes on, he so shines, he so inhabits that character that I cannot imagine anybody else being Alfred anymore. He, he is so wonderful. Michael Caine is one of the great actors of our generation. Mm. Uh, Despite things like Jaws. Was he Jaws 3? He was well, in Revenge, in I think. Crap, he was in some crap in the 90s, but that's it. Yeah, but he he's rarely it. the thing that's crap about those films, even when he is crap, uh, in crap mm. films. And uh, what I think he is the master of is facial expressions, like mm. really subtle facial expressions. There's the scene where he's comforting uh, younger Bruce when uh, his parents had just died. And he's not, he's trying to hold it together for Bruce's sake, but you can just see it on his face. It's like, I am just as torn up about this as you are. It's really great performance on his part. Seeing, seeing as we're all British, we're used to this sort of Michael, this sort of voice, this British state of voice. But one, my cousin from America, when he first watched, he absolutely loved this voice. Because. Mm. Every, you're always used to the very posh, posh prim and popper Alfred way yeah, of speaking. Yeah. But this really brought it down to very cockney. And that, yeah, he's not that all well, the time. Not, Most of the time he keeps it in check, but occasionally he just lets it go and goes like, you can borrow the rolls if you want. And he, he just goes back to being a little bit Italian job. And you just get a little <laughs> wink and a flash of Alfie there. Slightly wide boy. He's, yeah. he's an educated man who knows where he came from. Yeah. And he becomes even more key later on. Um, one unsung hero of these films uh, that no one ever really mentions, Wally Fister. Anyone familiar with the Fister? That's what she said. That's what she said indeed in many of the films that Wally Fister has been cinematographer on. Cinematographer Wally Fister hasn't, if you go to his uh, Wikipedia page, it goes all the way back to The Granny in 1995. But he did a hell of a lot of films before that, but he doesn't want people to really talk about that much. Uh, Secret Games, Double Vision, Sketch Artist, Night Rhythms, Inside Out 3, Animal Instincts. Inside Out 4, Step Monster, Amityville New Generation, Mirror Images 2. Ooh, you got great instincts. From now on, you work for me. This is like a private joke between Tony, Paul, and I. Because this was a mucky video. Like, uh, 
cheesy 90s porn where you've got to see a it bit was, of... It was... It, well, what did they call it back then? It was the erotica, wasn't it? That's the one. It was erotica from the, the, the 90s. And, you know, very sort of airbrushed, tasteful stuff. The stuff and, with Shannon Tweed in. Yes, Shannon Tweed. Lovely lass. A bit, you know, a bit of romping in the swimming pool. Usually with dramatic plots about affairs and maybe wives who wanted uh, husbands killed. Things like that. That sort of things. Maybe twin sisters. Maybe it's sexual obsession. That kind of stuff. But Wally Fister did loads of them. The Last Laugh, Object of Obsession, Animal Instinct 2, Secret Games 3, Sharing Secret, Memento. And basically it was just like... Memento? Aha. And suddenly, he was legitimate. I love the fact that he started on these from very humble beginnings. You wouldn't imagine watching Mirror Images 2 that that guy would go on to be the DP on the highest grossing blockbuster film of all goddamn time. You probably should avoid using the phrase DP in this particular context. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm glad somebody else mentioned that. <laughs> there was no DP in Mirror Images 2, as far as I can remember. There was only a director of photography. Yeah, they asked him if he could come in and sort out the DP, and he went, oh, all right, then. And then when he got there, ah, that's what you meant. Give him the benefit of the doubt, come on. What do your instincts tell you about that? Tells me you haven't been getting enough at home, sir. You got great instincts. From now on, you work for me. So we've done all of those. We haven't really talked Killian Murphy as the Scarecrow. This one's tough for me because the Scarecrow's never really been well-defined in comics and it's a little bit pantomime even in the animated series. He's even a little bit pantomime in this. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Batman. I think, though, by getting somebody that could portray uh, the, the clearly sociopathic elements of Jonathan Crane, mm. um, it, it does give him a little more umph than simply being a villain with a bag on his head, which uh, I agree that the rare occasions that I've read any uh, bits about Scarecrow, he does seem to be quite um, pantomime and, and random. Um, and, and they would, given that the tone of this whole thing is to try and make it very real, well, very realistic, as realistic as you can get when you're talking about a man who dresses up as a bat and fights crime, mm. um, it does add again an element of you can you can see how somebody who worked in that environment would get pulled down that path themselves and that they might use their um, their therapies as a, a way to express these things that they don't want to talk about in other contexts mm. well in this film he's kind of just an upper level henchman really Raz yeah. al Ghul is the villain of this film but Scarecrow is kind of a he's an interesting villain that they can work in because of the blue flower uh, being this 
uh, fear toxin that serves as the big finale of the film. But really, it's Ra's al Ghul who's in charge of that fear toxin towards the end of the film. And Scarecrow's just there to, you know, go, hey, there's this villain that you associate with fear, which which is good. I he is important to the plot of this film, but he's not he's not there. He's not the major player in this film. It's either. misdirection. Yeah. 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 Well, it's it's that there are many films out there that come under the heading of what a waste of Killian Murphy, and I I think they could have broadened character to, to get more out of him. I think he, yeah. he would have been capable of more. Um, but he is pretty good for, for misdirection because he's, you know, like Red Eye, you expect him to be one thing and it turns out to be something else. So it's, he has done that before. It kind of works for the Scarecrow, anyway, because it hints at the backstory without ever actually telling you any of it. Yeah. You don't need to know that he, you know, taught at Gotham Uni and all that sort of stuff it was it's what you need to know is there um the only comic stuff I've read with the Scarecrow in is all Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale stuff so it's very Mm. cartoony visual um the only time you really get that in this is when you see him through the fear toxin yeah when he's got a bat crawling out of his mouth and the flames coming out of the horse's mouth and all that sort of stuff but that's lifted straight from one of those comics I forget which one I did read a really awesome fanfic once that gave this whole intricate backstory for Jonathan Crane and how he'd got to where he was and, and all that kind of thing and it, it was excellent it was really well written as well it's just, unfortunately later chapters just kind of degenerated into this sort of slashy obsessed with Batman thing which well that's pretty much how it went in the in the comics uh, was he started off as a he was no, believe me it didn't go this way in the comics no probably not <laughs> Sharon were you reading slash fic Hey, look, well, my, cho- my other choices are porn or bad erotica. <laughs> May I suggest Or Fifty mirror- Shades of Grey. <laughs> May I suggest Mirror Images 2. <laughs> From now on, you work for me. You got great instincts. <laughs> Christ. Um, okay, um, J- Paul and I don't know who, who else is a big fan of this book. Uh, scenes pretty much lifted from year one. Anyone want to list them? Um, oh, uh, the scene where he summons the bats. Yeah, that's a sonar device. One of the most significant, yep. Talking to Gordon outside his house. Yep. Um, the ending. Yep. The, um, the bit where he's sitting down and then he hears a chirping sound and he goes into the room and then there's a bat in there is an analogue of the bit where a bat bursts through his window and settles on a, gar- uh, 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 bust and goes... <coughs> And it's a more sort of realistic depiction of what yeah. a bat would actually do. It would just flutter around and round and panic a little bit. Criminals being a superstitious and cowardly lot. Yeah, I don't think that was actually mentioned in this. I don't think it's been said in this because it's a ridiculous line to say. It's so degrading to, to the notion of criminality in terms of you know, just everyone who's a criminal is both superstitious and cowardly. Which yeah. they, they counter by having Bruce nick an apricot or a peach or a plum or whatever it is when he's doing that whole, you know, his notions of good and evil got turned on their head. Mm-hmm. And then stealing his own tech, which was a neat, uh, a neat little twist, yeah. a way of getting him to that uh, Tibetan... I was just going to say, I think, to have that scene where he, he steals the fruit and then say, criminals, and they're Being all... superstitious and cowardly. All of them are. Mm. Um, uh, but no, they had the, the point that he, he points... 
he says that he has to be something elemental, something that will be a figurehead of fear. They get that absolutely right about how Batman... Well, I say they get it right. It's a really interesting take on Batman. It goes back to the basics and it elaborates on them. It's the best way of rebooting a series because it doesn't throw out the window everything you know about Batman. They've pretty much kept faithful to the character. They've just augmented him in ways that it's now difficult for people to really separate certain bits from this film from what they know about Batman. Another scene that was pulled out of year one, I believe it's um, Jim Gordon in the car where while Flash goes and take some protection money from the yeah. store. Yes. Now, Flash was kind of different in this one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's not an ex-Greenberry. Yeah, in the original um, year one, folks, for those who haven't had the pleasure, uh, he's an ex-Greenberry, this sort of buzz-cut, really big, mean, beefy, well-built guy who's very intimidating and actually, uh, you know, di- indirectly, uh, under the guise of masks and, and, and baseball bats and guns, threatens Jim Gordon uh, if he doesn't start going on the take. And Jim has to take him down, physically take him down, one-on-one, and gives him a baseball bat just so that the guy will have a handicap against him with his bare fists. It's a really great moment. And this flash is a porky, <laughs> pathetic mess of a guy who reminds me of Eckhart in the original Tim Burton yeah. film. Yeah. And, and also a little bit of Bullock as well. The funny thing is, that guy crops up in Too Fast, Too Furious, being pretty much the same character. Uh, I think he's just there to show uh, this, like, caricature of a rubbish, corrupt cop, so that Jim Gordon will look all the much better. Oh, how can we not talk about Gary Oldman? Smack me on the ass and call me Charlie. Right. right. Gary Oldman, usually a super over-the-top bad guy, and Sharon and I just saw Bram Stoker's Dracula again the other day. That film is goddamn hilarious. I am astonished that Mel Brooks watched that film and said, you know, you could do this scene, but you could do it funny. Mel, it's hilarious. <laughs> Trying to watch, but Gianna Reeves go, I know where the bastard sleeps. You can't do a better scene than that. It's, it's the best comedy ever, and it's not supposed to be. But Gary Oldman in that is crazy over the top. And at times, a little bit sexy? I don't know. Let us know what you think, girls. No. (laughs) (laughs) Even even when he's young, his hairline is receding so far, he's beckoning for a comb-over. That's not even Gary Oldman's actual hairline. Why did they do that? Anyway, um, Gary... He likes the bald cap. He's used to playing characters like Zorg in Fifth Element, like um, Stansfield in Leon. Um, Yeah, that's the one that always springs to mind for me when you say Gary Oldman. It's just the, send everyone. Bring me everyone. Yeah. Everyone! Which, of course, Gordon didn't do in this, even though exactly the same scenario happens. So he's basically he's gotten through his career doing crazy villains in the sort not too far away from Nick Cage, and sometimes he really does go a little bit too over the top. He was bad in um, Air Force One, as I recall. He was all right in Harry Potter. Yeah, no, he was most of the time. He was very good in Harry Potter, specifically in Five. Ah, no, I think I know what it might be. When you think he's a villain, Mm. mad over the top. Yeah. Once he's been outed as actually on the good side, then he calms down a bit. So he maybe, in, he's yeah. just, maybe he's just got this thing that bad guys are ridiculously pantomimish and over the top. Yeah, I've, it's very rare. In which case, you, stop hiring him to play villains. It's very rare that you see him play a guy who is just bolted down and very, very. Um, 
I can't say evil, really. Because obviously evil like, and bolted down don't really... You can't be. You, you either... Okay, but it's, it's been done either way. But Gary Oldman in this, this is so significant for Jim Gordon fans. Because, again, Jim Gordon's never been given a decent cinematic outing. Played, that guy who plays him in the Burton and Schumacher ones, it's pathetic. It's like an afterthought, like, oh, we've got to put Commissioner Gordon in there. He's as important as Gordon was in the West ones. Which is to say, not... Yeah, he was just a caricature in the West ones. Yeah. But since 1987, Jim Gordon's been a key character, since before then, obviously in the Adams uh, era, but um, significantly since 1987 when uh, Miller put him square in the beginning of Batman, uh, he's been a key character for, uh, for Batman to relate to the actual paid proper crime fighters in Gotham. There's the whole... The conflict between Bruce and the cops really comes out in The Dark Knight, but it starts off here. This notion that these are the guys being paid to do the job that Batman is now doing as well as them. But these are, again, the first professional cops, apart from Flash, who's an idiot, um, to, uh, in, in the Batman series. Because, again, b- before they were bumbling buffoons who'd shoot you in the back if you did so much as, as far off an umbrella at a crowd. <laughs> um, I do like the the way they tie him or they bring him in in this one as well, which yeah. is different to year one. It's one of the departures, as in bring him in at the point where Bruce's parents have been killed. Yeah, having him as the is it Sergeant Gordon at that point? Something like that. Yeah. So yeah. he's been in Gotham for a long time, relative to the time of the comics. Yeah. So it, it does differ from year one, but it works and it gives you some explanation as to why Bruce trusts him. Yeah. Uh, and that was nodded to I think we mentioned this in the Arkham shows in Arkham Asylum um, which kind of distances the Arkham Asylum games from the comics it's sort of a that makes it a definite combination for Nolan films and the comics and yeah. the animated series and the appearance in this is straight out of year one yeah for Jim yeah. Gordon down to the tash the hair colour everything Speaking of folks that Batman talks to in and around Gotham, anyone mo- notice Joffrey? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Twice, yeah. in fact, yeah. Batman, if you're looking for little psychopaths ready to happen, he's right there. You just gave him your bat periscope, you fool. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I was watching <laughs> Batman Begins with some friends, and I was like, look, I know you've got the Scarecrow to deal with and Ra's al Ghul, but that kid there will grow up to be far worse than <laughs> any of keep these off the fire escape? Even the Joker would say, Jesus, you know, I, you know, I would stop short at making hookers kill each other. <laughs> I have no flipping clue what you're talking about. Just watch Game of Thrones, for the love of God. I'm sure you is that Joffrey makes Heath Ledger's Joker look like a... <laughs> a parasite. Oh, All I would say about kids, though, I mean, obviously you will notice more of this in the second one, but when he goes to talk to Gordon mm. at his house and you see Gordon's wife and you see the two kids, that's a nice little nod. Although, I'm one of them's sure. called Barbara, isn't it? Actually, isn't the, the, the wife's called Barbara? Yeah. His wife's, wife's called Barbara, yeah. But I so there's no mention of Sarah Essen in this. No, no. Essen was later on. Yes. Yeah. Was his second wife. But at the time, he did have two kids one Barbara and one James. Is it Jim Jr.? Well, Barbara's his niece in is the it comics. Barbara's his niece, oh. 
Oh, is that right? Is um, she only his daughter in the animated series and the West I think he, one? In the comics, he start, she started off as a niece and he adopted her. Actually, I could be wrong. I've got to say, we've never really had a chance to talk about this. The whole Barbara Gordon being Jim's daughter and deciding to, to, to you know, be a crime fighter as a result of Batman, we've actually got to thank the Adam West show for that. As crazy as yeah. it sounds, she, that wasn't part of the comics until then. But because she was so popular in the, in the show, they stuck her in the comics. A uh, like combination of that in, um, was it Dr. Wortham? The corruption of the innocent and all that sort of thing. Oh yes, the whole coming. You can't have two two blokes living together. We need to put <laughs> a female one in there with his young boy. Yes, <laughs> which I think is why they wound up with Batgirl in the animated series. Who in the name of God designed this comic book code? Because everything I hear about it just makes me think this is mental. Well, it needs adjusting by today's standards. <laughs> well, it's like that thing about they couldn't show... What was it, you couldn't do a scene where two people were in bed together unless one oh, of them had a foot on the floor. I mean, for goodness sake. That's like, you can't have sex spoken. with your foot on the floor. I've had it done. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a guy called Frederick Wortham led the... Basically, a witch trial in the fifties. We talked about this on, on this very show, actually. Yeah, uh, it's the corruption of the the young thing. Uh, I mentioned before, seduction of the innocent was the, the name of the book he wrote. That's the one uh, I mentioned before about the uh, the film about some kids reading zombie comics, and then one of them gets up and starts stabbing a tree with his penknife, and then he looks at the back of his friend's head and picks up a rock because they're drawing a direct correlation between horror comics and teenage murder. Right. I read zombie comics when I was about six, and I've never killed anyone, to my knowledge. You no, that's it. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're getting slightly off the track here. Yeah, sorry. Um, I think when it comes down to it, I prefer The Dark Knight in almost every way, but this is a phenomenally good Batman film. And oh, it was absolutely. so needed, not just for Batman I- itself... Without this, Iron Man would probably have had a different feel to it. They needed this to just sort of up the tempo and to really show Hollywood that people wanted this. I think for me watching it again um, this weekend on Blu-ray, I I was actually... Because I always knew I liked it, but I was surprised how much... I liked it watching it again. I'd forgotten how good the film is. And mm. think, I think for me, what's so impressive about it is how so tightly woven together the story is. It doesn't feel like any element is just there, oh, because the comic book fans would like that. Every character serves a purpose, and everything threads together neatly. And it's a really impressive film. I, As you said, Alex, I prefer the dark knight because i think it just does what begins does but takes it up to 11 um but this on its own is absolutely spectacular as well Mm. if they'd never made any other batman films after this ever again it would have been a fantastic finale and at the same time it's a brilliant beginning but the fact that they actually not only managed to to follow it up but even did better which is something that sequels don't really usually do it's great that we got the sequel and we're waiting for the next one but you know if this had been the only one we'd still all be happy yeah if they'd just like rebooted it again a couple of uh, years later if, if if this had been not popular at all it would stand as this sort of oddity made for the 
you know, only a few people who took Batman seriously. I'm just really pleased that audiences took to it so well. And it, it is wonderfully shot. All, all the stuff, tra- the training sequence on the ice field. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank it's, you, Wally Fister. Yeah, fantastically shot. And the way, I believe they use Chicago in this one as well, mm-hmm. as in Dark Knight. And the way they've combined that with CG and model work is brilliant. Yeah, quite often, watching on Blu-ray, you can spot these things. Yeah, they, they leap out. It's incredibly finely crafted. Uh, there are points in the Narrows where it's obviously a set if you, you're really looking at the right time. But it feels like Blade Runner in this kind of like, it's, it's almost like Shanghai. And it's the brownest Batman film you've ever seen. But at the same time, it's got this claustrophobic sense of Gotham. So it doesn't really seem like the same, like the cartoonish Burton universe. I think Arkham's a perfect example. I said this to Sharon. Arkham looks like a warehouse which is what most asylums would actually be like. They've actually gone out of their way not to make it look like a good, great, big, crazy, wacky House of Horrors gothic cathedral, which is what it looks like in the games and, and pretty much every other version of Arkham. To sow the seed in your head that if Batman actually existed, this is what would happen and this is what it would be like. They have to maintain that integrity, and they do so. I was just thinking with the fact that DC are trying to get the Justice League stuff off the ground like Marvel have done mm. they really are going to have to reboot Batman just for the simple fact this world is so created that Batman is the only sort of superhero yeah. you, couldn't, you couldn't get super- Superman in this world yeah it, it wouldn't make guys like super, uh, you know, Green Lantern or, or Superman or the Flash just wouldn't make sense in this world because they'd have to be shot in the same realistic fashion mm. there are even villains in uh, Batman's rogues gallery that just couldn't be in Nolan's uh, universe Mr. Freeze oh, well I was thinking Poison Ivy and Killer yeah. Croc and people Clayface, like Clayface. Yep. Clayface Mad, yeah. Mad Hatter KG Beast. <laughs> I don't know, Mad Hatter, maybe. Yeah, yeah you could go at it from the same angle as Scarecrow, but somebody who can control plants with her mind, I yeah. think she's stretching it. Yeah. I'll tell you what, who would actually be good in the Nolan verse, and it's probably a shame we won't see him, is mm. Hugo Strange. Yes. Yeah. That's why I had such high hopes for Arkham City, because I was thinking this is the one where Hugo Strange gets to be the bad guy, and there was talk for such a long time that. Strange was going to feature prominently in the third Nolan Batman film, and they pulled that back. As I was say, this is the world where the, the not-super-powered villains sort of really come to the forefront. Because there was talk of uh, the Riddler being in this one. Uh, I think I read somewhere that they wanted uh, Leonardo DiCaprio to, to play the Riddler. I heard Johnny Depp. I would I like I heard to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> I also I heard I, Robin Williams. <laughs> I, also, I also heard Eddie Murphy, so... Oh, oh no. that's I, up there with Wayans as Robin. Oh, I heard Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> no, Could no, you no. imagine Jim Carrey's Riddler facing off against the Christian Bale Batman? Like the jacket? <laughs> <laughs> what was that you said? <laughs> just punch him and that's it. It'd be over. Done. Elmo head. Other scenes lifted from year one include Bruce's flight into Gotham and, of course, most significantly, the horrifying depiction of the murder of Bruce's parents, already referenced in Burton's Batman, the animated series, The Batman, Arkham Asylum, and Batman Forever, but portrayed to its truest and most dramatic effect right here. 
What's wrong, Bruce? No, no, it, it was me. I just needed some fresh air. A little bit of opera goes a long way. Right, Bruce? Come on. Let's go. Wallace. Joey. My best. That's fine. Just take it easy. Take it easy. Here you go. It's fine. It's fine. Now just take it and go. I said jewelry. I've just looked at the ending in my copy of Year One, and it is different to the movie version as well. Ah. It's not a conversation on the rooftop. It's right. just Gordon stood there by himself. It says, you know, somebody's threatening to poison the reservoir, calls himself the Joker. I've got a friend coming. He might be able to help. The bit where he hands Batman the card, and he's saying, you know, what about Escalation? find any mob bosses. Well, Sergeant. Oh, it's Lieutenant now. He really started something. Bent cops running scared. Hope on the streets. What? The Narrows is lost. I mean, still haven't picked up Crane or half the inmates of Arkham that he freed. We will. We can bring Gotham back. What about Escalation? Escalation. If we start carrying semi-automatics, they buy automatics. We start wearing Kevlar. They buy armor-piercing rounds. Yeah. And you're wearing a mask. Jumping off rooftops. Now take this guy. Arm robbery, double homicide. Got a taste for the theatrical, like you. Leaves a calling card. And then he turns around the card, shivers. That is a wonderful piece of filmmaking. That is a, if we don't get a sequel, I'm a Dutchman moment. It was one of those, you were just at the edge of the seat, and you go, I can't wait for the next one. Yeah, and, and the way he phrases it does make me wonder if it's not a nod to, obviously, they were filming in Chicago and The Untouchables. Oh, uh, yeah. He brings a knife, you bring a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Chicago way. Okay. In the next few days, keep your eyes on Gonzo Planet for the release of my first full-length audio play. It is called Batman Breakdown. 
It's a script that I wrote very recently based on a story I thought up several years ago. I was helped in shaping the tale by a long-time Batman fanatic, David Hartrick, who wrote the article on Hush from uh, Digital Gonzo episode 86 and the Dark Knight Returns retrospective currently on Gonzo Planet, where he says it's not the classic everyone makes it out to be. Thank which you. Is quite brave of him. Thank Both you. Very good articles as well. Yeah. Really, really, really like his writing. This guy knows his Batman. Ensuring that David approved of the finished tale was key to me creating an authentic Batman experience that could actually fit into continuity. However, I wrote it so that someone who had only seen the Nolan films or only seen the animated series or only played the Arkham games could pick it up and understand most of what was going on. It's a serious drama thriller. It's going to be about 75 minutes long and I'm putting it out on YouTube as well. This is probably the most ambitious project I've ever thrown myself into. I've got a small but surprisingly dedicated cast, and I think this has the potential to become quite popular. What I'd ask of all of you guys is to take a listen and then pass it on. It's not an accident that I'm releasing it the same weekend as The Dark Knight Rises. People are going to be bat-crazy for the next few months. So when you listen to the next shows, if you like it, if you approve of it, if you think it's worthy, please tell the world about this. Tweet about it, Facebook about it, link on YouTube, like my video, post comments. Just do stuff that's going to get this thing noticed. Because... I actually think that complete strangers who've never listened to Gonzo before, and maybe will never listen at all to Gonzo, will like this. So, I want to thank all of my guests. Joshua Garrity of Canaan Ritz. Thank you very much. Neil Taylor of Game Burst and KDS 2.0. Thank you very much. And from Gonzo Planet, Jerome McIntosh. No problem. Paul Gibson. Thank you. Sharon Shaw. Thank you for having me. And Akila Edwards. Thank you. We will be back next week with The Dark Knight. In the meantime, Batman Breakdown is out this weekend. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs>